0: Hi there, and welcome to Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zedek, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health. Joining me today is Dr. Chip Manuel. Chip is the Chief Food Safety Advisor at Gojo, the makers of Purell. Chip's academic research focused on norovirus and listeria, and that expertise was incredibly useful as we navigated COVID. Welcome, Chip. Welcome, Chip. Um, I'm pleased to have Chip Manuel from from Gojo joining us here today.
1: Good to see you again. How how have you been?
0: I'm well, hanging in there. It's been quite the pandemic. Yeah, Um, same here. you can imagine. We are both in, we're both in different businesses, but businesses that, that, that work together or, um, or work simultaneously often. And um, someone the other day described to me as, well, I think you're in the 19th month of overtime in your Super Bowl. Oh, my
1: gosh. Yeah, that's a good way <laughs> to describe it for sure. Absolutely.
0: Sure. And for us, and you, you may or may not know this, but for us, well... Visiting you was one of our last business trips before
1: lockdown. It was, yeah. I do recall that was right before everything really shut down. Yep.
0: Sure. And after that meeting, you sent us a very large pump bottle of Purell. Like, (laughs) super large. And it turned out to be a tremendous attractor at the New York restaurant show because there were not very many attendees, but they all loved to come get our enormous pump bottle of, of Purell. Um. Just a couple questions for you. Tell me what it's like for you. How has your job personally changed? What is your job? What's your background? And mm-hmm. how did it change during during COVID? Yeah. Those are sort of three three sort
1: of separate things. Ta- talk to me about what it's been like for you. Yeah, I'll start with a little background about myself, what my role is at Gojo and, and kind of how it's changed as as the, you know, obviously with the pandemic. So I I'm a pretty hardcore food microbiologist as a background. I did my Ph.D. in norovirus research and my master's in listeria research. And I've been in the industry in some form or another as a food microbiologist, food safety professional since about 2015, late 2015. And go role as food safety science advisor. So I really wear two hats. I, I, I help our internal and external customers and stakeholders with technical support on food safety and also help manage research projects that are related to food safety. So working with academics or either internally on projects that you know help uncover knowledge gaps related to food safety and so after the pandemic you know and I I think it's fair to say a lot of food safety professionals especially and those that work in um places that are serving food a lot of them had to not only wear their food safety hat but they had to turn on the COVID hat too right because they understand things like hand hygiene they understand things like surface sanitization and disinfection and so um I think when my job got the biggest issues the other markets within the uh, and to it's outside the word. So I it became a little bit of a sounding board, you know, just to have conversations with the technical aspect from key customers and and, and external stakeholders. Hey, what do you think about this? You know, are we interpreting this guidance right? Because you recall back in early last year, it was just every week there was something changing, right? And so it was that really turned into kind of a, a help to to sift through a lot of the changes, what's what's important, what may not be as important and so forth. So.
0: so how did the business have to adjust to meet the supply needs at the start of the pandemic? I mean, we all heard, you know, there was, I mean, there were all these, you know, liquor plants that converted to, to hand sanitizer oh, yeah. manufacturers. And it's um, certainly yeah. a different product and not necessarily, um, well... I won't editorialize about them, but yesterday I commented that I walked out of our own office building, used the hand sanitizer that was on the wall, and my hands suddenly smelled like tequila. But um, <laughs> yeah. um, how did Gojo adjust to meet these enormous supply needs?
1: You know, we've we've learned from, you know, not just SARS-1, but also H1N1 they kind of monitor public health situations across the globe. And so this became our radar, you know, pretty early on in 2019. And right around, I'd say end of December, early January, we really decided, okay, we're going to ramp up production. We're going to get ready for this because it's about to hit. Um, And so we really increased and activated what we call our demand surge preparedness. Um, So that got production going full swing in January um, and, I think it's safe to say, I mean, no one expected just the demand that was going to stress our, our industry. And so, unfortunately, we had to prioritize certain markets, right? We had to make a difficult decision. That we can't supply a market right now. We're going to prioritize frontline workers, right? We're going to lose health care first, centers, military, grocery uh, retailers, and so forth. Um, and so that, that was a decision we made kind of early on in the pandemic. Did you support, I'm sorry, just one question about that. Did you support existing
0: clients first or markets, markets, new markets that may not have been your clients, but had an urgent need.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, um, we really looked at the front, who was on the front line first, the sectors. Uh, And we, we were able to support where we could some existing business. Um, So yeah, I think um, not to get into too much detail on that, but you know, it really was who needs it the most. Um, And so that kind of, kind of led us towards our, our decision on that. Um, and then we immediately kind of took steps last year to invest in the supply chain, right? So we opened in 2020, it was a, kind of a, and, and early this year, is was kind of a landmark uh, to a uh, few months for us. We've opened three new facilities in Ohio. We've got another two and a half million square foot of production space uh, since you last visited us. Um, we actually have a dedicated plant just for our service products because of all this and really i mean and our ceo has been she's talked about this on publicly on the news is that we took 10 years of capital expenditures and thing you know uh, funds set aside for 10 years of capital spending we dumped it all and spent it on the supply chain improvements in a single year so um, now we're at a capacity and inventory level that I mean, we're we're ready for any increase in demand. You know, especially if with the winter months coming. If we see another surge, we're we're at, we're at a good spot to fulfill all the demand.
0: Oh. Are you how are you handling the supply chain issues now? I mean, we're hearing about supply chain issues from every every yeah. segment of every industry.
1: Well, as part of that investment I just mentioned, one of the things we did too is we we um, you know brought as much of the production process in house as we could and specifically to the state of Ohio where our facilities are. And so we're, we, when, I, when I mentioned we're in a good spot to fulfill um, the needed supply now, I really, I really do mean it. And so I think we're, re- we're ready uh, to support any business that comes to us and wants Purell products. That's cool.
0: Um, so, so let's talk about theatrical sanitizing. <laughs> I've had more questions, so there was a period of time, probably not as much recently, although a little bit circled back recently, mm-hmm. about how much of the sanitizing redo were for theatrical purposes, how much are they to satisfy our, our customers, our, our guests, our employees, or health departments versus what was really needed. How did your wor- How did that look in your world? How did you address those questions and concerns? You know, how much of, you know, when we learned that we weren't as concerned about surface, you know, mm-hmm. transmission of COVID How did that change things for you and for Gojo?
1: Yeah, that's and that's I'm glad you brought up the surface piece too, because I want to I want to bring up some I don't want to say unintended consequences, but some you know, some discussions that came that I had with some food safety professionals because of some of that updated guidance. So so I think when you when you think about this particular virus and you think about controlling it, I think it's been very clear that person to person spread. Because obviously it's a respiratory virus it can travel by droplets and aerosol from sneezing, coughing, and even by touch. Um, I think, you know, number one, what we saw is keeping people away from other people, keeping sick individuals from coming into the workforce, very much like what we do with norovirus right. in food settings, uh, was extremely important. Uh, so that that was very clearly number one for preventing the spread. Number two, and you see this in a lot of public health method, messaging, is hand hygiene. And so I think hand hygiene still to this day remains one of the mo- most important ways to, uh, to prevent transmission, especially not just this particular virus, but others as well, um, other diseases. And so uh, I think that is probably here to stay. I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about some of the research we've done um, on post-pandemic usage of these products. But I do want to talk about surfaces as well. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of the uh, early on we weren't really sure how important surfaces are in fact there were some I believe there were a couple of reports out of Asia I believe where uh, they thought they, they found a smoking gun outbreak um, from SARS-CoV-2 from, from surfaces so it got everyone uh, surface sanitizing and disinfecting on a regular basis and I think we realized that it's the person-to-person spread is exponentially more uh, risky that's really how this virus spreads but I do want to mention that what I've seen, at least specific to the food world, is that there's this there's this thought now. Well, I don't have to surface sanitize or surface disinfect anything. And uh, I've had a lot of conversations with um, folks that you know had SOPs related to norovirus control or restrooms that were asking me, "Hey, do I, Do I really need to worry about norovirus?" I mean, so it was a little bit of an unintended consequence of that that key message about Downplaying the surface transmissibility of uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, and as you, as you know, and all of us in the food world know, norovirus can transmit very easily in surfaces. So we want to we want to make sure we continue to focus on those hot spots. Sure. Well, I, I just have a couple comments about that. You sure.
0: you and I met over norovirus protocols and neuro prevention, mm-hmm. um, and we had you know some very large clients in common. Um, that were doing a very, very good job with neurosanitizing protocols. And um, those clients that were doing a very, very good job with neurosanitizing protocols, with hand-washing, with making sure Mm -hmm. that employees don't work sick, had very smooth transitions to COVID protocols. Yeah, that's a good... They they dropped in, many, a few of them, literally dropped in word changes. You know, know, it, it was so simple. So you know that I am... You know, I never stand in front of two or more employees in any client organization without talking about handwashing. And, you know, that's been the case yep. for, for 25 years. And you and I have that in common. The other thing is that, you know, we at Zero Hour Health and Zedic have been, you know, incredible big fans, you know, of your Surface product. And uh, our clients who were using that, again, had, you know, very, had yeah. no, they didn't have to change products. They had no transition. The, you know, the product worked. Um, do you think Hygiene Theater is here to stay?
1: Um, I I think there are some things from our level, from what we have seen that are here to stay, and I'll give you some numbers. So we've done some surveys across uh, multiple markets and across consumers, and what we saw is that before the pandemic, roughly we about three out of every ten people would use hand sanitizer three times a week, and the numbers we're seeing now are about seven out of every ten are using hand sanitizer at least three times a week, and we do expect that to stay. And then when we poll, I thought you were going to say around. a day because that I, would be more typical of my use. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This was uh, we didn't we just asked general usage and not really how many times a day, but but um, at you know at least three times a week, um, presumably when people are out and about in the community they're using it. So we think that is here to stay, um, and we have had, um, you know, folks approach us about installing hand sanitizer at, at the front of house for guests. Right. Sure, that they. Prior to the pandemic, they probably weren't, it wasn't on their radar. But now it's something that they, it communicates to the guests and customers that they care. So we, we've seen that a lot, actually. I want to talk
0: to you about that. Um, sure. So we saw them appear. We had, we had clients that did that before the pandemic, but certainly many mm-hmm. more since the start of the pandemic. Um, and they were always full. And I've noticed a trend over the last month or month and a half that they're not always full, um, which <laughs> may in fact be... You know, create a whole other set of issues, and what is the perception? And you know, are we sanitizing our hands? Talk to me about that. Are you seeing those kinds of drop off in in usage from some of your from some of your industrial or, or
1: industry clients? Or oh, I think it's um, with the with the markets that I deal with, the drop offs really related to tra- foot traffic, mm-hmm. and a lot of places are, are minimizing foot traffic going in, and so you do see a drop off there. Right. Most um, dining rooms are but, back
0: open though. In in yeah um, casual dining and, you know, and fine dining, there are all, there are still a lot of, of quick serve that have dining yeah. closed.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say probably, you know, hand hygiene in general is, it's probably not at the same levels as it was at the height of the pandemic, especially last year, but all indications from our end is that we're going to, we're going to remain at some level that's, you know, um, uh, a, a bit higher than pre pandemic hand hygiene levels, but, uh, I think you're right. It's probably not going to be at the same level as the peak that we were in the middle of uh, at the start of all this. Yeah. So,
0: so during that. the pandemic, one of, one, of the, one of the silver linings um, were that we weren't talking about norovirus outbreaks. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and yeah. and here, here in our world, we were dealing with norovirus outbreaks almost on a daily basis. You, may, you know, they didn't necessarily, many, most of them didn't hit the news and most of them were contained. Um, but we, we were dealing with noro every day. Um, and we went through a full year, 12 full months, before we had a single confirmed norovirus.
1: Yeah, I think you might know the stats better than this than me, but wasn't it some, a drop from the CDC, like 800 uh, outbreaks in the prior year and went down to like 850 or 80 total? That,
0: that's, about, that's about right. And we know their numbers are actually very low because a lot, so much of the norovirus outbreaks that we deal yeah. with are never actually laboratory diagnosed you know, but, oh, but, yeah. but we know what they are. Um, down to, down to none. And, and we're not sure, you know, we think we understand the details of that, but there are some lessons learned there to, that are so important for the industry. You know, it was social, dis, was it social distancing? Was it masking? Was it hand-washing? Was it, you know, better sanitizing? I will often um, judge an establishment that I go into, whether it's a client or not a client, by the bathroom. You know, and bathrooms have been cleaner. Um, few, fewer good, people have yeah. used them, so they've been cleaner, but now they're they're, there, many of them are back to, to being used as frequently. Um, talk to me about that reduction in those other communicable or foodborne diseases that we talk about, and what are the lessons, yeah. what are our takeaways?
1: Yeah. yeah, I'll dive into a little bit on the Nora piece, and specifically since CDC has actually published on this. Um, there was a paper, either at the end of last year or early this year, um, that basically what the, what the researchers set out to do was twofold. One, try to explain this drastic reduction of norovirus outbreaks, right? Is it is it under-reporting, right? Is it because the public health system so overwhelmed with COVID that we're just not capturing I don't think so. It? Or Yeah, or the other thing that they tried to mention is, okay, well, if it's not that, then what's causing it? So, so to answer the first point, they found very quickly that this research found that it, it is isn't under-reporting, right? So... Uh, it was actually the not what they called the non-pharmaceutical interventions, so things other than vaccines, collectively made a drastic reduction in norovirus illness. And unfortunately, the data wasn't really amenable to parsing out, right? We We're weren't really sure how much of it was disinfection, weren't really sure how much of it was hand hygiene and so forth. But, you know, the key message is that the totality of those COVID controls uh, carried over towards controlling norovirus as well and i will say this too on specifically on nora that's been quite a few risk models that show that um, you know particularly key touch point disinfection is actually pretty important for norovirus control especially in restrooms. Uh-huh. i think mean, fda's published on this uh, roughly 2017 and so you know i don't want to try to bridge too much here but i would suspect that at least for that particular virus norovirus that the the surface disinfection has a very uh, critical component um, you know, and why we saw such a reduction over the, the last year or so. Yeah. Um, we've
0: seen some return. You know, we've we've had some more neural-like illness, but um, we rolled out a new product with electronic daily wellness checks. It was similar to a product that was similar to a service that was developed years ago for Chipotle, and we were in the, in the process of, of rolling out for Texas Roadhouse when COVID hit, and, and it developed it into a, a large-scale daily electronic wellness check, and that um, process of ensuring that no one worked sick really was incredibly important. So, yeah, and, and it was helpful that um, one COVID symptom has has you know been a, a group of GI symptoms from the start. That there's been some nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea with COVID throughout, and with Delta, there seems to be, anecdotally nausea being a lead symptom, um, mm-hmm. that someone feels some, some nausea on day one and then the rest of the symptoms hit, hit on day two. And we, we do keep hearing that. And when I say anecdotally, I mean, we hear it, you know, hundreds and hundreds of times across our, yeah. our, our sort of thousands of daily chats with, with employees. Um, so we're getting a lot of questions about people returning to the office and people returning to in-person meeting and lots of places that are requiring sanitizing and disinfection, cleaning and disinfection between the use of things like hot desks and meeting rooms. Oh, yeah. talk to me about that what's the best way to manage that it feels complicated
1: yeah yeah I think and I really think a lot of it's uh, it's a little bit of a resource um, exercise too right and so you know in my experience you got you have some businesses that they choose to have um, you know they basically have a dedicated staff for conducting these mm-hmm. uh, cleaning and, and sanitation sanitation protocols and I think what I would say to that is you know it's really in peak hours how often can you get to it right and, and kind of and this is this is somewhat similar to what we get asked a lot in in the Nora world it's okay how often should I disinfect this restroom and always the answer is well as frequently as you, as you can reasonably uh, without constraining other parts of the business as frequently as you can reasonably do it. And I, I think that would be the same answer I would have for the the in-person office meetings and then the other thing we've seen a lot of is um, offering things like hand sanitizer and offering surface wipes at the at the entrance or somewhere on the table and people will kind of self-police it themselves um, and so I think that's that's something that um, is what I've seen is it more or less a best practice
0: as well. Sure. I mean, we have a lot of clients um, for their in their offices, their support centers, their service centers that, um, that that are going to hot desks that, you know, everybody had assigned workstations before. And now with everyone working from home, you know, you don't need, you know, 500 separate workstations when you have, you know, 125 or 250 people coming into to an office at most at any one time for the foreseeable future. Um Someone asked an interesting question in our own office the other day. They asked with no one in the office, was the office being cleaned and sanitized? And our answer was yes. And then someone asked, well, why are you still sort of paying for that service? You know, and the, you know, the answer is because it's the right thing to do. But but there may be some on the, you know, on the flip side of that, where offices are closed and then they're not using cleaning services or sanitizing the same ways although there are people sporadically coming in coming into those offices. So we're in an interesting, interesting um, transition period yeah. with the next transition period coming up. So now I've got the million-dollar topic to discuss. What can businesses be doing? And this is a question I get a lot. What should we be doing mm-hmm. to prepare
1: for the next pandemic? I think you we sort of already touched around some of it, right? And um, it's... It's a matter of I think you got to realize first it's not a matter of if it'll happen it's a matter of when and I say this it's not just a, a global respiratory virus pandemic it's things like you know I'm gonna put I'm, I'm gonna selfishly put on my food food uh, food safety hat it's things like boil water advisories it's things like someone coming into your restaurant and having a vomiting incident right which is that that should trigger your norovirus response plan so. I think you got to realize these emergencies are going to happen, and it's not a matter of when, or it's not a matter of if they're going to happen, it's a matter of when. So you got to have a plan in place. And so we just spoke a little bit ago about how, in both of our experiences, those customers that had very strong food safety plans adapted very quickly and very well to these COVID emergency response plans. So I think um, making sure that these that that you have a plan in place uh, and you know how to execute it that's absolutely most critical um and i think um you know having a plan to having a process i should say to continually revise the plan ensure that it's working right do test runs and so forth that's absolutely critical and we do this a lot in the food world right we do mock outbreaks and mock recalls right. and so i think that has to be if that wasn't in you know, a, a company's SOPs kind of moving forward, uh, it needs to be. Um, so I think that's, I know it's kind of cliche, have a plan, but I really do feel strongly that's the number one thing um, businesses can do.
0: Well, you know, along um, those lines, um, we have several clients um, who are in areas that are that are prone to hurricanes. Um, and those who had yeah. excellent hurricane preparedness plans back in the, the mid Two thousands mm-hmm. developed pandemic flu plans, and they were very much a quick exercise. You know, it wasn't months of a pandemic planning committee meeting to draft a flu pandemic plan. It was taking the hurricane plan, um, you know, and updating it and and revising it to to yeah. be a different a different risk.
1: Yeah, listen, and 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 you know maybe it speaks to it's it's almost a logistics exercise more than anything, and having. Um, making sure everyone understands the role in the in in the team, right? Um, so that's a very interesting finding. It doesn't surprise me at all.
0: Yeah, not at all. Hey, let's go back to the distillers for a second, because I'm fascinated by that. Oh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> do you have to kill on your hands, too?
1: <laughs> no, no. But I can, I can tell you and your listeners and, and audience what kind of where that came Love from. Love to hear so it. Actually, so I don't know if your audience knows this or not. But, well, probably the majority of them do, but... Hand sanitizer is actually an over the counter drug, right? So it's, you know, these drugs have a basically a use indication, and, and technically for hand sanitizer, it's a reduction of bacteria on the surface of hands that could cause disease, right, and so forth. Anyway, so the point is, FDA regulates this. Um, when they realized that the hand sanitizer supply was getting pretty scarce back in the early days of the pandemics, there was um, a bit of a relaxation of the the, the guidelines to get into, uh, pr- producing these products. So some of the specific things that they allowed was, um, well, you didn't have to go through the kind of registration process. You could th- basically they're allowed a, re- a streamlined registration process. Um, you could get alcohol and ethanol, ethanol and isopropyl alcohol from essentially non, you, you know, pharmaceutical grade sources, um, And then you had to formulate according to what's called the WHO, World Health Organization, formula. So they have a formula they push out, um, and it's to make sure everyone's kind of producing the same thing. Well, what we found was that there was a lot of alcohol suppliers that came into the market um, that essentially had a lot of kind of impurities and malodors that kind of got purified through the process along with, uh with the purification process and so we actually saw this a little bit not to go into too much detail but we saw it a little bit with some of our supply chain and trying to look at new vendors and stuff you know planning for the future and there's just a lot of stuff's kind of kind of smelly now that being said some of the smelly stuff is still effective it just it's not unpleasant it's not pleasant to use and where does that come into play well if you give someone something that doesn't isn't really nice to use. They're not going to use it, right? So, regardless of if the product's effective, you got to have people using it as well to to get that public health benefit. So, I think that's that's something that kind of what we saw at the start of the the pandemic, and it. it I think you just had a lot of, you know, we, we've been making hand sanitizer for thirty three years now, right? So we we've got it down pretty pretty well to a science. We formulate only with you know highest quality ingredients, and you know. Um, and a lot of I think a lot of the new players that came on just just dove right in and didn't really understand the full nuances of making these products, and so that's why you had the tequila hand sanitizer uh, that smelled kind of funky. Um, so, so yeah, and so I'd say that, it, and you know, it's not just us; it's all the all the all the major brands of hand sanitizer that were here before. And didn't just come along during the pandemic, you know. I think we, we all continued to make quality products. Um, I think you just had a lot of number of the small, maybe regional players uh, produce product that had kind of the what we call the weird aesthetics, you know, those smells and feels and so forth. Yeah. And the, a lot of these were kind of runny too, you know. Yeah.
0: Well, excellent. Well, let's close on that note. Thank you so much. I could talk about this for hours, and, and appreciate your time. show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover, or if a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at ZeroHourHealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice weekly executive summary, check out ZeroHourHealth.com. Thanks again.